0: My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban marshall credit card bill.
1: If you're looking for the origins of primary elections, you'll find nothing written about them in the Constitution of the United States. The Constitutional Convention, perhaps with some wishful thinking, never mentioned parties at all in the document, hoping perhaps that parties would remain a relic of the British parliamentary system and not reach this continent where individuals reigned supreme. It would not be so. Within two years of the first federal administration of George Washington, two parties were organizing, as Washington's Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson became disgruntled and started to organize anti-federalist factions. They took the name Republican, which of course has nothing to do with the party that bears the name today. At the same time, Washington's Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton started organizing followers for a counterparty to support a strong federal government. But how these parties would operate, and certainly who would get the nomination or endorsement of a party for the office of president, would not be an issue for the first eight years of America's federal government, as no one from either of these early factions dared run against George Washington when he decided to seek a second term. Since these subconstitutional activities known as parties were not addressed by the framers. How the political parties would choose who they would support for the presidency was not seen as worthy of government, certainly not of interest to in the Constitutional Convention. The primary election system that Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, Giuliani and McCain will compete in in 2008, one that is heavily regulated by the states, was not dreamed of by them. It was not part of 18th century thinking. In fact, the primary was really not around much in the 19th century either. It would really not be until the 20th century when a public vote was used to pick candidates that would be nominated by a party. Political primaries are ostensibly a result of those muckraking, trust-busting, middle-class progressives who dominated turn-of-the-century politics in America. And that's part of the explanation. But like so many things in the history of politics, noble reform is nice, but its ambition that clinches the deal. And the real drive towards the system of political primaries we have today was not only the result of a general progressive feeling in the country and a move towards citizen involvement in politics, but also the raw ambition of men, three men in particular. When George Washington announced that he was not seeking a third term, nominations for president came from the Congress. Congressional members of each faction, caucuses, met and decided on nominees. For 1796, Adams and Jefferson were nominated. This system continued as the primary means of nominating candidates until the 1820s, when Andrew Jackson, a Westerner lacking a caucus to support him in Congress, was nominated by the state legislature of Tennessee. But nomination by state legislature was not an idea that had a lasting impact on the political process. It was in the end of Andrew Jackson's first term that his ambitious Secretary of State, Martin Van Buren, decided he wanted to become Vice President. The current Vice President was John Calhoun, chosen so that Jackson could win the Deep South, but completely at odds with Jackson throughout his term. And certainly Martin Van Buren had Jackson's blessing. But Van Buren decided it would be better to obtain the Vice Presidency through a means that might give him a national mandate. And so, in 1832, the Democrats held their first national convention, which Van Buren and his powerful New York political machine called the Regency controlled. The idea of a national convention was that a candidate for president would be chosen by delegates picked by state conventions, caucuses, or party machinery of one form or another in each state who would then assemble in one place at one time and pick a presidential candidate, and a vice presidential candidate, and a platform. Van Buren would use the device that he created in 1832 to earn the presidency for himself in 1836. Today's conventions are are more infomercials for the parties. It was not so long ago that they were still quite competitive. In 1976, in the GOP convention in Kansas City, When the convention picked Gerald Ford over Governor Ronald Reagan, the GOP saw its last truly competitive convention. And in 1980, when delegates for Ted Kennedy came to the New York uh, Democratic Convention of that year and lost a floor vote to release all delegates in the convention to try to open it up to have a possibility of Ted Kennedy winning, when that vote failed... That was the end of the convention as a competitive process. But that was 1980, and considering his less-than-altruistic intentions in forming this political device, Van Buren's invention had a long run. So in a sense, Van Buren is one of the factors in the in the primary system because the role the primaries play is in choosing delegates to go to the convention. And it's not until 1905 when Wisconsin held the first primary, the result of the urging of progressives led by Senator Robert LaFollette who wanted to diminish the influence of bosses by involving citizens in what was called direct democracy. And only in 1910 did Oregon create the first presidential preference primary. Going into the 1912 election, six states had primaries. California, Nebraska, Oregon, New Jersey, Wisconsin, and North Dakota. But by the spring of 1912, six other states had joined. This sudden increase in the amount of primaries in America was not only the result of a general progressive feeling, but a necessity for Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt had refused the third term in 1908 and instead virtually put his friend William Howard Taft into the presidency. But Teddy Roosevelt, upon his return from a tour of the world and an African safari, found Taft to be not up to the job, inadequate, and especially, he disliked Taft's decision to sue U.S. Steel, which highlighted a deal that Roosevelt had made with J.P. Morgan in order to advert a panic in 1907. Roosevelt decided he wanted the presidency back, saying famously, I'm stripped to the buff and my hat is in the ring. This made for a highly unusual 1912 election. And given the president, President Taft's control over patronage, Many delegates were pledged to Taft, and Roosevelt needed primaries to get what he wanted. With certain state legislatures full of allies of Roosevelt, he was able to get new primaries in Illinois, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Ohio, and South Dakota. When these Republican legislatures passed the law allowing primaries, the rule also applied to the Democrats, and so on the Democratic side in 1912, Woodrow Wilson became one of the first presidential candidates to actively campaign in a primary. Wilson had been talked about. He was the president of Princeton University and then became governor of New Jersey. he had been talked about since the previous election in 1908 as a possible presidential candidate. So he had some, a little bit of uh, star power in, in politics at least. But he was nearly done in by participating in several campaign appearances in the Illinois primary of 1912. He appeared in Chicago, in Peoria, and in Springfield, but then lost the primary to House Speaker Champ Clark, who never appeared in the state. Primaries would also help Wilson, though, and when he won Oregon and Wisconsin in his home state of New Jersey, he was back in the race as a serious contender. But even in the progressive election of 1912, party bosses in smoke-filled convention rooms still dominated. So even though Theodore Roosevelt beat William Taft
0: My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin-Marshall credit card bill.
1: And captured 236 delegates to Taft's 34 from primaries. These delegates represented only 20% of the total delegates, which meant realistically Roosevelt had no other option but to bolt the party in order to get a nomination. The most famous of all presidential primaries, the New Hampshire primary, didn't exist in 1912 to help Roosevelt or Wilson, It would be created four years later and would become the first in the nation primary in 1920. Unlike today's New Hampshire primary, there were no candidates trudging through the snow or sipping coffee with residents in 1920. It was only a primary to select delegates to the convention. These delegates, although they were usually aligned with one presidential candidate, they could go to the convention and vote for whomever they wanted. It was not until 1952... When New Hampshire changed to a presidential preference primary, known pejoratively as a beauty contest, that New Hampshire acquired the political fame it has today. Voters were now voting directly for their candidate for president. And in 52, the Granite State made two decisions that would affect national politics. It chose Dwight D. Eisenhower over Bob, Mr. Republican Taft, ending the latter's chances. And it chose Estes Kefauver, a novice senator, over Harry Truman, the sitting president, who then decided not to run. Another crucial moment for New Hampshire was when a strong vote for Eugene McCarthy, a senator committed to withdrawal from Vietnam, helped to convince Lyndon Johnson not to seek a third term. As a result of these and other presidential elections, New Hampshire has entered American folklore for three key things. It's the first in the nation primary, the official beginning of the presidential election. As Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and George Bush Sr. would find out, the snows of New Hampshire became the perfect place to upset a president or another political frontrunner. And most important, up until the 1992 election, New Hampshire always voted for the presidential winner. I think in recent years, New Hampshire's role as the place to upset a frontrunner or a sitting president has lost a little bit of his luster, perhaps from overuse after candidates got to New Hampshire early, worked the state, and sort of gamed the system so they'd have a big, high-profile win early on in the campaign. Now you see the last two presidents did not win New Hampshire, and significant wins in New Hampshire. McCain's over George W. Bush, 2000. Pat Buchanan over Bob Dole in '96 had almost no effect in the nominating process. So while I think the New Hampshire primary serves a good purpose, I think it's good to have such a small state where candidates are forced to deal with average Americans. It is not the most representative state in America, nor is Iowa, uh, whose caucus precedes it. But I think it serves a useful purpose. But I don't think you'll see in future elections the same shock value as the state had when... Eugene McCarthy surprised Lyndon Johnson. Still, even in that year, in 1968, although the New Hampshire vote stung Lyndon Johnson, it was likely more of the symbolic role that New Hampshire played because in terms of delegates, New Hampshire, nor any primaries for that matter, would have determined if Lyndon Johnson could have another term as president or be nominated by the Democratic Party. In 1968, Only 15 states held presidential primaries, a number that is not much higher than when Roosevelt and Taft faced off in 1912. Most National Convention delegates were chosen by party machines, much in the matter Martin Van Buren had intended them to be in the 1830s. Hubert Humphrey, who was seen as a hawk on the war with Lyndon Johnson's blessing, wrapped up most delegates through rank-and-file Democrats. Hubert Humphrey, who at the time was seen as a hawk on the Vietnam War, who had Lyndon Johnson's blessing, wrapped up most of the delegates. The rank-and-file Democrats in 1968 were in large numbers opposed to the Vietnam War. Also telling about the difference between those convention delegates in Chicago and the Democratic voters in the rest of the country was that a platform at the 1968 convention calling for an end to bombing in Vietnam failed with 60% against. Stung by the thought that a national convention could be so out of touch with the party's rank and file, and angered by the reaction to protests at the Chicago convention and the way protesters were handled, activist Democrats began to make reforms. Chief among them, a senator from South Dakota named George McGovern. McGovern formed a commission which sought to make the National Convention of the Democratic Party, more representative.
0: Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.
1: And for the 1972 election season, the Democratic Party would add strict rules that forced party caucuses to represent groups of all races and sexes. If a state could not ensure that its delegation conformed with the so-called McGovern-Fraser rules, the only option was to have a primary because these rules were very difficult to comply with most states decided just to hold a primary and these rules and these McGovern rules held when mayor richard daly of chicago attempted to send a delegation to the national convention in 1972 without making changes or complying with the McGovern-Fraser rules his delegation was not seated the new rules of the democratic convention for 1972 had a not so surprising beneficiary senator McGovern himself McGovern, who was clearly against the war in Vietnam, garnered all of these new activist delegates and received the nomination. Like Van Buren's institution, the McGovern rules for the convention process lived beyond his candidacy. And so by 1980, 70% of delegates to the convention were chosen by primaries. And even the caucuses, such as the Iowa caucus, which came to so much prominence in 1976 when Jimmy Carter used it as a springboard for New Hampshire, was a far more democratic process than a group of party bosses meeting in a room. And though the McGovern rules remain today, the system has been tinkered with. You've seen Super Tuesday, where the southern moderate states would vote on one day. and was created after the 1984 disaster for Democrats. Had little effect in the next election, but did help to nominate Bill Clinton in 1992. In the last election, many major states moved their primaries to March, which had the effect of helping to clinch the Democratic nomination for John Kerry once he was successful in Iowa and New Hampshire, making it unlikely anyone could catch up. So it's been the systems been tinkered with over time. In looking at the history of primaries, we've seen how the ambition of three men, Martin Van Buren, Theodore Roosevelt and George McGovern led to changes in the system of nominating party choices for presidents. We can say two things perhaps that with any change there's usually a person behind it and there's almost always unintended consequences that go far beyond the election in which the change occurs. So with certain states such as New Jersey and California moving up their primary who benefits? It would appear that that moving up the states earlier in the year has effect of making these states more important, but also of benefiting the front runner in the race. Which at least at the time these changes were made appeared to be Hillary Clinton. Given that the former First Lady has plenty of allies in the Democratic Party establishment, it's not unreasonable to say that the changes may have been made to accommodate her. Certainly in the case of New Jersey, the governor has already pledged to support her, and New Jersey is one of the states that moved up its primary early. But as with other changes in the past, there could be unintended consequences. In 2004, moving up the primary calendar may have had the effect of making John Kerry the inevitable candidate early, as early as March, and allowing the Bush White House plenty of time to build up a campaign against him. The same front-loading that was engineered in 2004 may have also already had an impact on 2008 as it may have started candidates moving earlier. Certainly, presidential campaigns declared earlier this year than in any other presidential election one can think of. So while primaries have been moved up front-loaded to maybe try to advantage certain candidates, it may be the case that announcements have simply moved back as well and so we may be in the same place now in terms of a primary campaign where normally you'd be in the early part of the election year with Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama battling now when maybe if these primaries weren't front-loaded they would be battling next year. There's a remote possibility that the front-loading of primaries if done in such a way that the nominee is picked so early that rank and file Democrats do not have confidence, particularly with the type of mobilization efforts you can see happen easily on blogs, meetup groups, and new form of organizations. It's possible you could see the action move back to the convention, where literally democratic activists could force the convention to open up delegates, allow them to vote however they want, no matter who won the primaries, if enough rank-and-file Democrats get involved. That's just one of many possible unintended consequences of moving up the primary elections. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.